Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is the second in our series on Lord, Teach Us to Pray. I've entitled our session today, Job, Praying When It All Seems So Hopeless. I'm sure we've all had those experiences. Just by way of background, before we begin to look at the text, and I do hope that you took the time to read at least the first two chapters of Job and also the last, oh, five or six chapters of Job. Now, we're going to look at a few little uh, things uh, in between those chapters, but uh, if you read uh, if you read those parts of Job, you'll you'll get a lot of what's going on in Job. Just by way of background, uh, the name Job means the persecuted one. He apparently was a very real historical figure because he's mentioned twice in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 14, and also he is mentioned as a uh, as a paragon. Of uh, a virtue in uh, in James chapter five, we don't know who the author is. Suggestions include Job himself, which is very unlikely. Uh, also, uh, Moses may have uh, sometime mentioned as an author, or Solomon, or Ezra. The truth is, is that we just simply don't know. As far as the date is concerned, we do think we we know about the time that this was done. The traditional. Uh, view of the date is around the time of the patriarchs, which would have been around 1800 B.C. That's uh, that's the time of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and uh, uh, that group of people. The reason that uh, scholars think that that's probably the case is because the sacrifices that it talks about that Job made were in the patriarchal pattern. Job acts as a priest for his household. Uh, there's no references to Israel, nor to ec- to the Exodus, nor to the law of Moses. Um, and certainly, as we'll see, Job lived to be an, an old man, which seemed to be pretty characteristic of that, uh, of that day and time. As far as the location is concerned, uh, it's the land of Uz. No, it's not the land of Oz. He wasn't looking for the wizard. This is the land of Uz. It's outside of Canaan. It's probably to the northeast of Canaan, and the reason for that is there are references to Chaldeans and Sabaeans, um, and they would have come from the northwest region, so probably uh, he lived uh, not the northwest, I'm sorry, the northeast region. And uh, so... Many Bible scholars think that probably the land of Uz is somewhere northeast between Damascus and the Euphrates River. Again, the truth is, is we just really don't know for sure. Um, what about the major themes to the uh, to the whole book of uh, of Job? Certainly, suffering is a major theme. Why do the righteous suffer? And yet, suffering is not the primary theme. The primary theme is one of faith. Uh, And the question that's answered in the book of Job is, can a person hold fast to his or her faith in God when things just inexplicably and very terribly go wrong? 
By way of uh, going back to the idea of suffering, again, it is a major theme, but uh, unlike what many people think, it is not the major theme of the book of Job. Uh, it's, uh, it's almost, as it were, incidental to what's really going on in the book of Job, going on in the person of Job. When you think about suffering, there basically there are four sources uh, from which suffering can come. First of all, uh, we can suffer because of our own personal sin. Uh, I think we, we all know that. Uh, and uh, again, in James chapter 5, remember it says that uh, if there are any sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church. And the elders are to anoint with oil and pray the prayer of faith. And the, the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. So in James chapter 5, the whole idea of personal sin can be linked to illness. Uh, it can be linked to uh, to suffering, although it does not necessarily, if a person is suffering, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have done something specifically sin-wise that has brought that upon themselves. And again, we go back to, I think it's John chapter 9, where Jesus and his disciples were walking around, I, as I recall, it was in the city of Jerusalem, and they passed by the man born blind. And remember his disciples said, why was this man born blind? Was it because of something he did uh, or because of something that the, his parents did? And Jesus said, neither one. Uh, the reason the guy was born blind was so that the glory of God might be demonstrated. And of course, Jesus proceeded to, uh, to heal the man. But one of the sources of suffering can be our own personal sin. Now, another source of suffering is somebody else's sin. Sometimes we suffer because of what somebody else has done. We don't uh, live and sin to ourselves. Our sin always has consequences. Uh, for example, in, uh, in the book of Jonah, remember Jonah is the one who's sinning. He is running away from what God has told him to do. And what's the result of that? The sailors' lives are put in danger, the sailors that are on the boat, uh, all of the cargo that the merchants had put on back uh, at Joppa, put on the boat to take to Tarshish, all that was thrown overboard in an effort to try to keep the vessel afloat. And so there, there's an illustration of how the sin of one person can affect a lot of other people. Uh, Another source of uh, suffering can be uh, uh, things that are avoidable in terms of physical and natural disasters. Uh, uh, certainly, we know that smoking uh, is a is not healthy, and if you that is something that you can avoid. And uh, if you refuse to avoid that, then uh, them is probably going to bring suffering in your life. Now, I know all of us know exceptions to those cases. In fact, I, I personally know one. My maternal grandmother, I think, died at about 94 years old, and she smoked two or three packs a day almost up until the day that she died. And when she died, she didn't die of a lung problem. So clearly there's an exception. But the truth is is that sometimes uh, there are uh, things that we do that can bring, uh, that we could avoid if we wanted to, that, uh, that will uh, bring suffering into our lives. Then there are also unavoidable uh, physical or natural disasters. I think uh, we think of things like uh, 
tornadoes. A person goes to bed at night and they know there's thunderstorms in the neighborhood and they don't think about it and the next thing they know uh, their roof is uh, three blocks down the road. Um, and that of course brings a lot of suffering because they lost a lot of things and uh, while insurance can uh, certainly uh, replace things, uh, there are memories, old photos, and things like that, and just and of course there can be uh, uh, fatalities and uh, injuries and those kinds of things that come from that. So again, those are just some reasons for suffering. But again, I, the point, and I didn't mean to spend that much time on that. The uh, the the primary theme in the book of Job is that of faith. Can a person really hold fast to his or her faith uh, in God whenever things just terribly and for no apparent reason seem to go wrong? Um, and the question is being asked, and, and we'll see this in chapters 1 and 2 in just a moment, and that is, uh, why does a person really serve God? Is it for the good stuff that we can get from God, or is it out of the fear of getting bad stuff from God that God is, you know, sort of hanging over the parapets of heaven and He's kind of keeping a close eye on us? And if we don't do the right thing, then He's going to zap us with some sort of lightning bolt, and out of fear we serve God, or or do we serve God out of a sense of love and devotion because of who He is? Because he is God. And that's really the question that's being asked and answered in the book of Job, as we shall see. Now, I'm going to assume that you have read those first two chapters of Job. You'll notice in your notes that, uh, and, and I have not put all of uh, Job 1 and 2 in your notes. After all, that would take up a lot of, a lot of space. But you will notice that uh, in your notes that there are two different typefaces in, uh, in those first two chapters of Job, the, the, the sort of bold face, which I, I believe is an aerial type face, it's a non-serif type face, is, uh, is what Job was aware of. The serif type face, the lighter type face, is what was going on behind the scenes of which Job was, to uh, yeah, of which Job was totally unaware. And uh, so let's just read some of this. I don't want to read all of it, but let's read some of it. In Job chapter 1, it said, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And notice what it says about him. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Notice it says four things about him. He was blameless. That does not mean he was sinless. The only sinless person who's ever lived is the Lord Jesus Christ. It means he was blameless. Uh, there were times, I'm sure, and certainly before we get through this, we'll see it, that he did sin. But when he sinned, he knew the right sacrifice to offer. He did the right thing uh, after he did the wrong thing, I guess you could say. He was blameless. He was upright. That is, he was, he was morally upright, a righteous man. One who feared God. That is, he had a great reverence for God, and he turned away from evil. I think the old King James says... He, uh, he eschewed evil or he shunned 
evil. It goes on to talk about that uh, he, he had ten kids, uh, seven, seven boys and three girls, and had tremendous wealth because it talks about all the livestock that he had and all the servants that he had. It, it, it says, this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. And then he talks about how his sons would hold uh, feasts on uh, day, you know, seven sons on different days of the week, and they would invite they would invite the uh, their sisters to come to those things. And it says in verse uh, five, and when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So not only were those first four characteristics true of Job, but also he had a, this man had a real concern and love for his family and particularly uh, here for his children. Now, Notice the typeface changes. This is this is just Job knows this. I mean, he's living this uh, as uh, as the book opens, and then all of a sudden there's a scene that Job does not see. Now you and I see it because it's written here in God's Word, beginning at verse six. It says, "Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Here, the sons of God are angels." Uh, the reason we know that is because in Job 38, verse 7, it uses this same terminology, the sons of God, and it says the sons of God sang on the day of creation. Well, uh, I don't think any of us were around on the day of creation, so this has to do with angels. And they came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Notice, uh, remember, Satan is a created being. He is not a, uh, a god in himself. He was created as an angel and, uh, and he fell from his very important place and, uh, and certainly he does not have the qualities that God has very often we we somehow some people have the idea that God and Satan are kind of like in Star Wars where there's a dark side and a light side and they're sort of co-equal that is not the case at all in the Bible uh, God is above everything he is the creator uh, Satan is a created being, and that's the uh, that's the case here. And he's certainly not omnipresent because God asked him what he's been doing. He said, "Well, I've been walking around on the earth, kind of checking things out." And the Lord said to Satan, "Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth?" And then notice what God Himself says about Job. He is a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Those are the same four things that were said uh, right at the beginning of the, uh, of the chapter. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, and here we have the setup for the whole book. Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. There's the point. Now, what's, what's being asked is, what, what, what Satan is charging 
Maybe that's a better way to say it. What Satan is charging is that Job's commitment to God, Job's service to God, is based on utility. That is, the only reason that Job is serving God is by doing so, Job's got it made. He's got wealth, he's got health, he's got great kids, he's got all kinds of things going for him. He's got tremendous prestige in the community. Uh, everything's just going his way. But he says, if, and, but he says, that's the only reason that Job is serving you. If you take all that stuff away from him, not only will he not serve you anymore, he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And almost everything that Job had is either killed or stolen or destroyed. All of his children are killed. His animals, his livestock. You remember, just all kinds of things happened. And you recall from your reading. Now, one other thing before we go a little bit uh, further in, in chapter 1. Notice that it says, uh, again, back in verse 12, it says, only against him do not stretch out your hand. Notice who's in control of this whole thing that's going on. God is. Because God says, okay, you can touch the things that Job has. You can touch his kids. You can touch his wealth. You can touch his livestock. You can touch anything that he has. It's interesting he didn't, apparently didn't touch Job's wife. Maybe we'll see why here in just a minute. But, uh, but he says you can't touch Job. And the point is, is that God is sovereign. And God is in control, and just as God is in control of heaven and earth and everything else, He's also uh, in control of, to, what, to the extent of what Satan himself can do. And we see that clearly right here. It's kind of like uh, the, 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 big, the big mean dog on a chain. You know, our tendency is to be afraid when the dog comes around the corner and all of a sudden we're standing there in the yard and we look like we feel like we're a long way from the gate because we're already in the yard. And yet all of a sudden the, the old dog gets to the end of the chain and it kind of jerks him around. And we realize as long as we're out of the length of the chain, well, we're safe. Well, that's, that's kind of what we're looking at here. It says in verse 20, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. Notice Job's response to all these things happening is worshipping God. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then we see the commentary on, what, on Job's action. On what he just, on what he did in worship, and what he said, it says, "In all this, Job did not sin, or charge God with wrong." Now that's an important phrase, that last phrase, because that's really going to come into play in the book. All right, that brings us to Job. Now, if if you were giving Job a grade on how he's handling everything so far, what kind of grade would you give him? Well, of course you'd give him an A+. He's doing great. He, he's doing better than any of the rest of us would be doing. Job chapter 2. Now, again, notice the, the curtain is pulled back 
Job does not see this. Job does not know this is even going on. You and I know it. It says, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Apparently just reporting in. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? So, uh, you know, pretty much just like it was in chapter 1. Verse 3, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? And notice what God says about Job. Now, this is even after all of this tragedy has happened in the life of Job. He says, Still, Job is a blameless and upright man who fears or reverences God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him. And notice the next two words, without reason. There was no reason that this stuff happened to him, other than the fact that this was, this was almost kind of like a wager between God and the old devil. The devil said, listen, the only reason he's serving you is because of the good stuff he gets out of you you let me get hold of him, and uh, he not only will not serve you anymore, but he will curse you to your face. Did that work? No, it hasn't worked so far. Not at all. So the old devil says this, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Now again, notice it's almost like that there's a wager that's going to I'm telling you, you you let me touch his body, you let me get a hold of him, and he'll he'll put a dog cussing on you, Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, now again, notice notice God's sovereignty here. God's in control of all of this that's going on. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand only spare his life. You can touch his body. There's a lot of things you can do to him. You can make his life miserable uh, from a personal, a physical, uh, psychological standpoint. But you cannot take his life. Notice, God is the one who's in control of that. There's a day that that God plans to bring us into the world. There's a day He plans to take us out of the world. I think that's uh, Psalm 139. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Uh, That's all in God's plan. But the point I'm making to you here is God is in control. Isn't it interesting that, again, it's it's almost like it's a wager uh, where where the devil is saying, here's what's going to happen, and God is saying, no, that's not what's going to happen. But the point of contact to prove the point one way or the other is in this one person, Job, and Job has no idea what's going on. He has no clue. He does not see behind the curtain the way you and I see behind the curtain as we read the story. So it says, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And wasn't that a helpful thing for the wife to say? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not 
receive evil. And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now again, you ask, you ask, you ask and answer the question, how's Job doing so far? If you were to give him a grade on his personal response to the events going on in his life, all this suffering, and the fact that he has no clue where it's coming from, uh, he, he believes it's coming directly from God because he says, uh, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive uh, evil? And yet it says he, do, he does not, in all this, he didn't sin with his lips. So again, if we're going to grade him, what kind of grade are we going to give him? Sure, we're going to give him an A+. Well, it's at this point that three of Job's friends show up. And they did one of the best things that a friend can do when you're having a hard time. They just sat there with him, and for a solid week, they didn't say a word. And, uh, and that's a good lesson for us to learn. Sometimes, you know, we, we're reluctant. Uh, when somebody's having a hard time, we're reluctant to call them or go by and see them. And, we, and, the, and the reason is just our own personal sense of inadequacy. Well, I just I don't know what to say. Listen, you don't have to say anything very often. All you have to do is just sit there. And you can just sort of pat them on the shoulder and say, you know, Man, there's nothing I can say to make this go away or make you feel better, but I just want you to know whatever's going on, I'm here for you. And then just shut up. And that's essentially what his friends did. Now, unfortunately, after a week, they decided they needed to talk some. But before they did, Job got to talking. Now, think about it. Job is... He's, uh, Kids are dead. All his wealth is gone. And you know the tendency uh, for us when suffering comes along, we, you know, earlier we were talking about um, the, the, the four main sources of uh, why suffering comes. And the first one that always comes to mind is some sort of personal sin. And the tendency for us to say when we've been looking at things that are going on in somebody's life and man it just looks like they're going through a lot there's a tendency among a lot of us to say you know uh, the truth is is that God gives good stuff to good folks and he gives bad stuff to bad folks that is God rewards the good and he punishes the evil God's sort of a like a behaviorist but that's not what the Bible teaches. Now, a lot of people believe that. And, and in fact, even Asaph in Psalm 73 thought that same thing. Remember, that's, that's such a great psalm because Asaph is, is struggling with the same thing. Why is it that the wicked are prospering? And why, you know, I've done all the right stuff and look what's happening to me. They're getting a the gold mine. I'm getting a shaft. In fact, um, let's see, in Psalm uh, 73... Uh, let's see, verse 13. He said, uh, Asaph says this, he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. What is, what is Asaph saying? He's saying, I've been doing all the right things and what is, what is it getting me? It's getting me nothing. See, he was thinking the same thing. If you do the right stuff, then you get blessed. But if you do the wrong stuff, you get blasted. Well, that's what these friends of Job began to think, and that's what they began to really press Job about. Job, 
The only reason this could be happening to you is there is some sort of sin in your life because God would never, ever do this to a person who's uh, who doesn't have something wrong going on. And I mean it must be bad, bad wrong going on in their lives. But notice Job's uh, reaction. Up to this point, it's been an A-plus reaction. But beginning in Job 3, it says, After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Why did I not die at birth? Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? Why is light given to him who's in misery, who long for death, but it comes not, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Notice what's happening to Job. Job seemed to be handling it real well. But it's going on and on and on and nothing seems to be changing. Nothing is getting better. And Job doesn't understand. And Job, as we'll see, has been praying. And Job is not getting any answers from God. God is silent. And while God is silent, Job's three friends begin not to be silent. And they begin to charge Job with some sort of sin. And Job begins to get angry and frustrated with his friends. And he begins to get angry and frustrated even with God. Now, the thing that happens, though, is that as you read through all of those intervening chapters where you got three rounds of uh, arguments, dialogue that goes on between Job and his friends, you find the friends talking about God and speculating and talking, giving, spouting their philosophy about the way God works. And surely this is why things are going on in your life, Job. You see Job responding to that and Job spouting a little philosophy of his own. But one of the things that Job does that his friends don't is that Job not only talks about God, but Job talks to God. Now Job's angry and frustrated in his talking to God. But the truth is, is that he doesn't turn away from God. And he never curses God. He curses his own life. And he curses the day of his birth, as we just read. So notice he's, uh, he's uh, struggling with all of this. We see he has a death wish. We've already seen that. Look at that in Job 6. Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope. What's the hope he's talking about? That he's going to get out of all this? No. That it would please God to crush me. That he would let loose his hand and cut me off. He said, I just wish God would just kill me. I've, I've, I've had all I can stand. So there's a death wish on the part of Job. He's disappointed with his friends. Look at the left-hand column of your notes at the passage from Job chapter 16. I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. See, there were good comforters to start with when they kept their mouths shut. Shall windy words have an end? What's, what's he saying? He said, will you guys ever shut up? Or well, what provokes you that you answer? He goes on to say, I also could speak as you do if you were in my place. 
I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. Notice, they've, give, they've, they've apparently been giving Job a hard time. And Job says, I could give it back to you because you guys do the same kind of stuff. How long, notice Job 19, how long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you've cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? He, he says, you guys are wrong and you're making accusations against me. I haven't done anything this wrong. And of course, when we read those first two chapters, that's exactly what God said. He said, Job hadn't done anything wrong. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. He turns away from evil. What's going on is that God is proving to the old devil and to us that the only reason for serving God is not just simply to get stuff from God. So you remember when last week when we, when we were talking uh, uh, about the Lord's Prayer and I mentioned just that little acrostic acts, uh, adoration, confession of sin, thanksgiving, and then uh, supplication where we present our petitions. The, we begin with the A in the acts, the adoration, the praise for God. Not just for what He's done, but praise for who He is, that He is God and there is no other. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. But notice Job is getting contentious now with the Lord. Now he's still speaking to the Lord. Uh, early on, remember back in uh, chapter 1, verse 22, it said, In all this Job did not sin, and then it added something to that. It said, Or charge God with wrong. Well, Job hadn't sinned to bring all this stuff on himself. But the pressure is getting so great and the frustrations are so great that he does begin to charge God with wrong. He says, look, Job says essentially, I have not done anything to deserve all of this. I'm not getting any answers from you, God. I want some answers. I want to know why this is happening. You are not being fair with me. Notice Job chapter 10. I will say to God, don't condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands, and favor the designs of the wicked? See, what's he saying? He's saying, you know, it looks like there are wicked folks all over the place and there's nothing happening to them and I'm doing the right thing and look what's happened to me. And essentially, he is charging God with being unjust. In fact, look at that uh, last passage from Job chapter 10 in the left-hand column of your notes. We see that Job has a death wish. He's disappointed with his friends. He's disappointed with God. But he's also become defensive. Job 10, verse 5 through 7, Are your days as the days of man, or your years as a man's years? Now, he's talking to God. He says that you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin, although you know that I am not guilty. See, he's saying to God, you know I'm not guilty of anything. So why is this happening to me? You're not treating me fairly. But notice the other thing, and it's on the, we, the back side of your notes here, that, that Job threw out all of this 
had a determination that he would trust God. Look, his whole world is caved in. His whole world is falling apart. But he realizes, they're, they're, where else do I turn? Remember the story where uh, Jesus talked, uh, he was talking to some group, his disciples were with him, but there were a lot of other people there. And, uh, and he said, you know, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, uh, you have no part with me. You can't be my disciple. And boy, I tell you, folks looked at that and they thought Jesus was talking about cannibalism. And I mean, they just left quickly. And all of a sudden, Jesus was there and he was just alone with his disciples. And he turned to them and he said, well, aren't you guys going away too? And Peter, the spokesman of the group, said, well, Lord, where would we go? You're the one that has the words of eternal life. That's where Job is. Job is upset. Job is frustrated. Job is angry. He's angry at his friends. He's angry at God. He's frustrated with God. But instead of turning away from God and crossing his arms and turning his back on God and saying, you know, there just must not even be a God. Job did just the opposite. He went to God. And he said, I don't understand this. I don't like this. And I'm looking for an explanation. Now, that was sinful on the part of Job to begin to make demands on God and to charge God with treating him unjustly because the, uh, the righteous one of the universe always does what's right. But Satan was proved wrong in all of this. Job did not turn away and curse God. Notice that passage from Job chapter 13 where Job says, Though he slay me. Now he's talking with to these three friends, but he's talking about God. Though he, God, slay me, I will yet hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. Behold, I prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. Who is there who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. Only grant me two things. Then I will not hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand far from me and let not dread of you terrify me. Then call and I'll answer. Or let me speak. He's talking to God. He says, or God, let me speak and you reply to me. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? You just you can hear the frustration and the anger in the voice of Job and all of this, but and nevertheless, but rather than turning away and saying all those things to somebody else, saying it to his wife, I well I just can't believe God would treat me this way. You know, I've done all these things for years and years and this is the thanks I get from God. Looks like uh, He wouldn't do this to me and I look down the street and there's a guy that he doesn't give a rip about God and it just looks like he's being blessed all over the place. I don't understand this and I can't get a straight answer from God. I think I'll just quit talking with God. And that's not Job at all. He turns to God. In fact, now, beginning at verse—I'm uh, sorry—beginning at chapter 27 through chapter 31, Job gives his final defense. In fact, in this passage, he, he gives a couple of monologues, and once again, he just affirms to God his own righteousness. Uh, now, he, he's talking to Bildad in Job chapter 27. That's in the left-hand column of your notes. He says this. He says, "As God lives, who has taken away my right." 
and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. He said, I am not going to lie. Far be it from me to say that you, you, Bildad, are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. He's saying, what you three guys are saying is wrong. I have not done anything wrong. And then he begins to reminisce in, uh, in Job 29 and 30. He talks about the good old days and what he wants God to do is to either restore him and the good old days that used to be or to answer his complaint. We see that to some extent in Job chapter 29. Uh, there are a couple of chapters there where Job just talks about the way it used to be. The, the great esteem that people held him in and, and the way that it was just so wonderful. But in Job 29, he says, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when His lamp shone upon my head, and by His light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me. And notice there's an interesting inference here. Notice the phrases that he uses. In the days when God watched over me, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me. Notice he's inferring that God is none of those things anymore. And to him it seemed that God had become his enemy. And yet he had no explanation for that. In Job chapter 30, he speaks to God and he says, I cry to you for help and you don't answer me. I stand and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. Notice, he is not only charging God with being unjust, he's charging God with being uncaring. You just, God, you just don't care. You don't care that all this is going on in my life. You don't, and, and on top of that, this is totally unjust. And, and I can't get any answers out of you. Job 31, Oh, that I had one to hear. I'm sorry. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. And the adversary here, he's talking about his God. He considers God his adversary. Notice, remember what he said earlier? He said, I've got my case that I want to present to God. Hey, you know, he's... He's got it all in his little folder there and he's ready to stand before the Almighty and says, look, here's all the stuff that I've been doing that's right and I just want to know why all this is happening to me and I'm presenting my case to you right now. Well, when he gets through with his monologues, there's a young man named Elihu who, come, who has come on the scene and uh, he, he's, he's aggravated with everybody. He's aggravated with Job. He's aggravated with Job's three friends. And he seeks to sort of break the impasse that's going on here, but to no avail. And what he wind, finally winds up doing is just charging Job uh, with presumption and impugning God's integrity. And certainly Job had uh, been doing that. But then beginning in Job chapter 38, we see the deliverance of Job by God. And notice the way God begins here. Notice, notice again, remember what's, what all has been happening. There's this contest that's going, a contest as it were, between God and Satan. 
if, if you let me do all these things, the old devil said, Job is going to curse you to your face. The only reason he's serving you is because you've got him hedged in, you've given him good things, or, uh, or he's, he's serving you because he's, he's afraid if, uh, if he doesn't, you're going you're gonna to zap him. And that contest is over. God has won that contest. But in the course of the contest, what precipitated the contest was not sin, any sin in the part of Job, but what's happened in the course of the contest being played out is that Job has sinned. He sinned with his lips in charging God of being uncaring, charging God of being unjust. And God's going to respond to that. Beginning in chapter 38, uh, God's going to interrogate Job. And in Job 38, He says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I'll question you, and you make it known to me. I say, look, uh, when we get together, the one that's going to ask the questions is yours truly, God is saying. Job, you're the one that's going to provide the answers. And then he asks him a lot of questions, but he begins with this question. Job, he says, okay, let, let, let's qualify you to come here and operate in my court. Remember, uh, for, for attorneys who are going to uh, uh, have cases before the Supreme Court of the United States, they have to be qualified to... Uh, to be able to operate, uh, to practice in that uh, particular venue. And that's essentially what God's saying here. He says, okay, I I've got some questions I want to ask you to sort of qualify you since uh, we're going to have this discussion. And here's the first question. Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And see, what's happening here is God is saying, God is making the point that Job's position was a whole lot different than the position of the one who is holy and eternal and incomprehensible. That is God Almighty Himself. Notice in Job chapter 40, the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Now who's the fault finder? That's Job. He's the one finding fault with God. Shall a fault finder content with, contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then Job answered the Lord and said, Now Job's going to offer two answers. Here's the first one. Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Notice, Job's been begging for the chance to stand before God. I've got my case prepared, and I'm going to get my answers from God. And God says, okay, here you are. Now, what have you got to say? And by this point, Job just puts his hand over his mouth, and he says, I've got nothing to say. In your presence, I'm overwhelmed. I've got nothing to say. You remember the, when uh, you read Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah was just really 
upset by all of the sin of the people of Judah and how they turned away from God. And uh, near the end of chapter 5 of Isaiah, over and over, Isaiah says, Woe to you, woe to you because of this. Woe to you because of that. God's going to bring judgment on you. Woe to you about five, six, seven times. And then all of a sudden it's chapter 6 and there's a vision of God in His holy temple. And smoke fills the temple and the seraphim are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And all of a sudden, Isaiah doesn't say, Woe to you. He says, Woe am I. For I am a man of unclean lips living amidst the middle, in, in the middle of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the Lord. And that's what's happened to Job. All of a sudden, he's had this vision, as it were, of God high and holy and lifted up. And he says, I've got nothing to say. Nothing would be proper for me to say. Remember in, uh, where is it, Romans chapter 13, that every mouth will be stopped and everyone will be guilty before God. Remember the story that Jesus told, the, the parable about the... Uh, about the, the the rich man, I think it was a king, who gave the wedding feast for his son. And of course, in those days, when you, you had a wedding, the person who was putting on the wedding sent out special wedding garments uh, to all the invited guests so that they would everybody be dressed properly for the wedding and for the for the feast that went along with that. And so it came time and the invitation went out and everybody came and they were all dressed in their wedding garments except one guy. He just kind of come like he wanted to. And the host went up to the guy and says, how is it that you got in here without a wedding garment? You remember what the guy said? <laughs> That's right, he didn't say anything. He was speechless. And God said, take him and throw him into the outer darkness. See, the only way we can come before God is clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And otherwise, our mouths are just silent. We have nothing to say. If God were to say, and He won't, but if God were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? You know, saying, well, I've done the best I can. I've done this and I've given money to the church. God doesn't want to hear any of that at all. And he already knows it anyway. And he knows that a lot of what we're saying is exaggeration. The only thing that has any validity at all before God is that nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. That's where Job is. Verse 6 of that Job 40, then the, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I'll question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Notice, God says, You have charged me with doing wrong. You have charged me with being uncaring and being unjust. And you're going to answer for it. And Job 42, Job answered the Lord and said, here's his second answer, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
Who is, and then he quote, notice there are little quotes there. He quotes what God had said earlier. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And Job responds to that. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And then he quotes God again. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. And Job responds, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. I guess that's the eye of his heart. That, and what's the, what's the uh, response to that? Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And that's where Job needed to be. It's at this point that God rebukes the three friends of Job and says, You did not speak rightly of me as my servant Job did. And in fact, he tells those three friends, he said, you go to Job and you get Job to pray for you. And that reminds me of what we talked about in our last session. Uh, you remember one of the, the, the petitions of the, what we call the Lord's Prayer is forgive us our trespasses in the same way that we forgive those who trespass against us. Notice, Job must have had a lot of animosity toward his friends. And so his friends come to him and says, God told us to come to you and ask you and ask you to pray for us. And Job does pray for them. See, it's important that we forgive others. Verse 10 of Job 42 says, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. Don't quit reading at that comma. He restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And after this, Job lived 140 years. Now, that doesn't mean Job died at 140 years old. However old Job was, he lived another 140 years. And saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Hmm. So, what are we to make of all of this? And remember this. That some people read this and say, well, you know, at least it all turned out okay in the end because the fortunes of Job were restored. There are times when, uh, when people's fortunes aren't restored. There are times when people are not healed. There are times when things just don't, don't seem to turn around. But the truth is, is that we are to serve God not for what we can get out of Him or not out of fear of what He might do to us if we don't serve Him, but to serve Him because of who He is, because He is God Almighty. He is from everlasting to everlasting and for the fact that He loves us with an everlasting love and proved that by sending His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at some of these uh, uh, final applications here. First of all, note that suffering is an inevitable part of human existence and the Christian experience. Christians are not exempt from suffering. The reason for suffering may be God's displeasure for our sin. We talked about that earlier, but, and it, but it may not be. It was not in the case of Job. But the reason for suffering may be unknown to us. The reason for Job's suffering was unknown to him and to his friends. Now, they were not unknown to us because 
we get the whole story and even see what's behind the uh, what's going on behind the scenes. When you and I pour over the book of Job looking for his sin to try to explain why he suffered as he did, we make the same mistake that Job's friends did. And remember, God said that Job's friends were wrong. They came up with the wrong conclusion. You know, they're basically... Four views of suffering. I, I have. I ran across this somewhere. I, I don't. I didn't put it in your notes. But basically, the old, the evil one says that people believe and serve God only when they're prospering and not serving, um, and not suffering. And that that's wrong. That's just a that's a wrong view of suffering. Job's three older friends said, "Well, suffering is God's judgment for sin." Well. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. And remember again, God said that these friends were wrong about the things they said about Job. And then there's Elihu. He was the younger guy. He said that uh, basically what his view of suffering was, that suffering is God's way to teach us and discipline us and refine us. And certainly that is true. But in the final analysis, it's an incomplete explanation but what does God say in all of this as we read that? And that is, suffering very often is what causes us to trust God for who He is, not for what He can give us or what He does. Why do we serve God? Is it for the good stuff we get from Him or out of fear of getting bad stuff from Him? Or do we serve God out of love and devotion for the love He has shown us in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is because of who He really is. Do we trust God even when nothing seems to be going well and God seems uncaring? And notice it seems uncaring because God does care. Do we rely on God's faithfulness to His creatures and His children despite our weaknesses and inability to understand what's happening to us? These are questions we need to ask ourselves and try to give ourselves honest answers. Again, Job's friends talked about God. Job did too, but he also talked to God. Notice, remember that Job initially accepted the slings and the arrows of outrageous fortune without complaining. But soon Job began to ask the question that always gets us in the doghouse. And that question is, why? Because when the answer did not come as to why, Frustration and anger began to increase and accusations toward his friends, accusations toward God, who was silent, began to increase as well. And yet Job refused to give up on God, as his wife suggested that he do. But he continued to seek to find God in order to present his case. Now his purpose in seeking God was perhaps not... Uh, uh, the best purpose in the world, but at least he was moving toward God and confronting God with cries for answers and help. But as we saw, when he finally came to that point, he realized what he needed to do was keep his mouth shut in the presence of the Almighty. The final conclusion is the one that we really... Well, and it's good that we're, that we're there because this is a good way to close. First of all, God is sovereign. He controls all the suffering that's going on in the world and He, ex he controls the extent of it. He controls the duration of it. 
but God is also caring. He never, ever gave Job an explanation. Did you notice that? Job wanted to know why, and Job never did know why, apparently to the day of his death. But one of the things that God did do was he vindicated Job before his friends because he told the friends, he said, you guys were wrong about what you were saying about Job. And he restored Job. And then finally, God is faithful. He can be trusted in any circumstance. Isn't it interesting that Job sensed that he needed someone to help him approach God? I need somebody to get me into the presence of God where I can present my case. And Job wanted to find God. And the answer to both of those things is found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the only approach there is to God is through Christ Himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me, Jesus said. And Job wanted to find God. Show us the Father and that will be enough for us, Philip said to Jesus. And Jesus said, If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. Hebrews chapter 1 says, In the days long past in the Old Testament through the prophets and the patriarchs and the fathers, in many ways and in many little pieces God revealed Himself. But in these last days, God has revealed Himself in the person of His Son. And His Son is the radiance of the glory of God. When we look into the face of Jesus, we see God Himself. I think the danger that we struggle with so much is that somehow I feel like I have the resources within myself to handle life and what life brings. And the truth is that we don't. The resources that we need are the resources that God gives us through His Word and through His indwelling Spirit. God help us to see that greatest theme of all in the, in the book of Job is the character of God. He is sovereign. He is caring. He is faithful. Praise be to God for His great grace and mercy. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax-deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.